and you you are much more objective if you admit up front that you aren't objective than if you claim that you are because nobody is totally so we all we all sift through the evidence uh, with a certain bias no matter how much we try to filter it out it's still there but you know the we have to try and uh, that's why we have other historians out there that can critique and evaluate what I do and I can critique them and so we keep each other in line we hope <laughs> some people won't stay in line but we we try to uh, help one another out um, by by a process of evaluation and criticism and suggestions and so forth uh, Jimmy yeah I, I think I think we got it okay, okay. Well, yeah <laughs> that's kind of an inside joke David <laughs> okay, <I got you. laughs> or, or David said uh, yeah and, and, and assuming that all is well uh, our honored guest is uh, David Fennessy um, now I'm, I'm going to I'm going to do your bio again because I think we had some issues airing earlier on uh, and I I'm I'm thinking that maybe they, they have been uh, settled okay uh, but I'm gonna do it again David so forgive me sure. uh, absolutely but I like to hear about myself all the time so I hope you're like that because <laughs> you get you sure get that treatment here our honored guest David Fennessy after graduating from Duke University with a PhD uh, in New Testament and Second Temple Judaism uh, David Fennessy taught for seven years at Kentucky Christian University. He then served a two-year tenure at the Institute for the Study of Christian Origins in Tübingen, Germany. Upon returning to the U.S., he accepted a church pastorate for six years and then resumed teaching at Kentucky Christian University. He's participated in seven archaeological excavations and surveys, and boy, am I still really jealous about that. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. <laughs> I'm drooling a little bit just uh, over that right there. Uh, and he's otherwise traveled widely in the Mediterranean area and the Middle East. And he's now semi-retired and involved in several writing projects. He and his wife are the parents of two daughters and two granddaughters. And we were mentioning before we got on air here that yeah, we were imagining that David can't get a word in edgewise, you know, <laughs> two daughters, two granddaughters and all. He enjoys running, hiking, cycling and reading mystery novels. Uh, his latest book is actually a fictional work, uh, but there is some uh, true stuff in there. Uh, we were just talking about that earlier. And uh, for those of you just joining us, uh, I was asking some questions about uh, his book, Christian Origins and the Ancient Economy, uh, which was, uh, I think, less than a year old now. Oh, a lot less than a year old. Um, and, and it talks about, you know, what does economics have to do with Christian origins? Why is there such a connection? But, you know, I, you, you got to admit, hey, you know, if you're watching the news today, <laughs> we're talking a lot of uh, economy today yeah. <laughs> and how people oh, yeah. are really affected by it. You know, so it's yeah. kind of it's really cool to go back in the times of Jesus, you know, and, and yeah. think about that, uh, the economy. And, and I was kind of asking, I'll, I'll ask you this one again. Um <sighs> Was the early Jesus movement a, a socioeconomic protest, you know, or was it primarily a religious reform? 
Uh, that's one of the questions he asked in the book that I'm talking about. David has like 30 Tons books, books, you know, yeah. we're, we're focusing on, on this one at the moment. Um, yeah. And yeah, well, uh, without a spoiler alert or anything, because I know you want to sell the book. What is your ultimate opinion uh, in, in terms of that question? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, so the interest in sociology and economics, we might say socioeconomics, mm -hmm. in studying the Bible grew up in the 80s um, as a result of the turmoil in America in the 60s and 70s. We had the Civil Rights Movement. We had the, the anti-Vietnam War protests. And that started Christians and Jews to thinking, um, is there an economic side to our faith? If you have faith, is there an economic responsibility? And so in the 80s, they just started writing these books and articles, and it was just like an explosion of interest that hadn't been there before. And so uh, my book, uh, Christian Origins and the Ancient Economy, you know, just it's in that uh, movement. It's within that movement. And they asked the same question. Could it, is it possible that the Jesus movement, we'll, we'll use that term to describe Jesus' ministry, the Jesus movement was socioeconomic. Was he protesting poverty and exploiting poor people? For example, I just heard uh, recently that in, in the world the 26 richest billionaires have as much wealth as 3.8 billion people on the bottom. Wow. Is, there, is there a moral problem with that? And so these people began asking those questions of, of the biblical backgrounds. It, was that going on in Palestine? Mm -hmm. And so, so then you had people say, no, it was, it was entirely a religious movement. Others say, no, it was entirely sociological. Here's the thing. It's not either or. If you are a religious person, in my opinion, in my judgment, you have to also conclude that you have an economic responsibility. You can't just say, I pray and read the Bible and ignore poor people and ignore suffering humanity. I don't see how you can be religious and do that. So it's not an either or, but it, you know, we've had this debate going on since the 80s. People are back and forth, and there are camps, you know, and how it gets in scholarship is just like it is in politics. There are camps of people who take one position, but I'm, I'm saying it's both. It, it, it wasn't that it was just a socioeconomic movement. Uh, it, it was a Jesus movement. It was a very religious movement, but you can't ignore, and Jesus himself says, you know, blessed are the poor, and he he, he says to these mm -hmm. people, I, I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was without clothing, and you clothed me, and, and this. And so he obviously cared deeply about poor people, and that was part of his religious teaching. Right. It isn't either or. It's a great question you ask. It, it is either or. You know, and I'm imagining, and correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, it's been a long time for me mm -hmm. since, uh, you know, uh, but there was a point where he confronted the church, really, uh, thinking about the unfairness of the socioeconomic status 
you know, uh, of the, uh, I guess, the, the, the people of that church, because they seem to be, you know, having the money. It's almost parallel, oddly enough and ironically, to uh, Martin Luther, you know, in the late 1500s. Uh, sure. Is that, is that fair to say? Because, I mean, that was one of his objections about the way things were going. Is, is well, my memory uh, correct on that? Kind of. Uh, so Martin Luther was upset with the fact that the church in his day, I, I don't want, I'm not anti-Catholic, so I'm not trying to bash. I, I love Catholics. I think they're great Christian people. But Luther was upset in his day uh, because they were selling indulgences and, and yeah, uh, door to door, you know, and saying if, if you don't give us money, then you're not going to get into heaven. You know, I mean, that's the kind of stuff they were doing in Luther's day that really yeah. got him up. And and your dead loved ones are going to spend extra time in purgatory and so forth. Right, they and the rich and the rich were buying plots in heaven. <laughs> you know, yeah, they were manipulating people. You know, by scaring them, and so that you know, exploiting the poor. Uh, mm -hmm. Luther was upset with that whole process, and that started him thinking, you know, on the, once he started, Luther was such a powerful theologian, you know, he he took it to his conclusion. So, yeah, it had to do—the thing about economics is it affects everything we do. You don't realize it until you begin to think about it and to apply these principles. Economics are just everywhere in what we do, and you, so you need to think about what what sort of economic— morals, ethics, do I want? What do I want to stand for economically? So that's that's what Christian Origins and the Ancient Economy is trying to do. Um, what's, what are we standing for when we, when we go out and make uh, economic deals, when we uh, help the poor or don't help the poor, when we have certain views of what society ought to be doing? What's, the, what's my economic morality that stands behind right. that? And that's still a tough question, and, and you mentioned that before we actually we had some issues in the first couple of minutes getting on the air. So uh, you know, I'd, uh, I did want to mention that, but but you know, that's kind of the thing that we were talking about is. And look, uh, you know, I was I've been in sales. All right, let's talk about modern times for a moment. And there were some jobs I had. There was a car dealership I worked at once, where you know. I wanted to sell the people that came into the car lot, the car that they wanted, you know, if they wanted an orange, uh, small, uh, let's say Chevy, even though it wasn't a Chevy dealership, let's just say that, you know, yeah. the, the boss at the car dealership would say, no, you know, you talk them into what we have in the lot, you talk them into, you know, um, yeah, kind of, uh, I don't know, go around, you know, any of the faults that the car might have or any anything that the car might have that is not in accordance with their wishes. And boy, I find uh, I found it very difficult to stay in a job like that, because to me, if you're selling something to somebody and you have a product that you can offer, why not give them what they want? Right. You know? Yeah. And, and I, I'm see and and we can apply that back to the days of Galilee too. I think you know uh, because yeah. there is there are moral issues along those lines, which does affect you know your your moral standing in your religious belief, you know your moral standing as a a part of a community, you know. Uh, sure. So, so so you can tie it together, you know. 
Well, I, uh, I've been there where you were talking. I, I worked in retail sales. When I was working through graduate school, I had several jobs in retail sales. And you're right. They want you just to sell whatever you have in a store, whether it's right for them or not. And there are people that will come into the store, and they'll take whatever you tell them. Yeah, oh, yeah. Elderly people. Elderly, whatever you tell them they need, they'll take it. Right. Well, that's just not, that's to me unconscionable that I would push something off on some. Well, thank you for saying that. <laughs> you know, that, yeah, uh, because, yeah, I absolutely, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with that because the irony is, and I worked a lot of retail too. I excelled in retail though because I worked at places where we had what people wanted and I was in a position, if we didn't have it, to special order it for them and make them feel, you know, like they belonged. You know, so yeah. they would always come back in, you know, if they ever needed, uh, you know, whatever I was selling, you know, clothing or records or whatever. Sure. sure. You know? I have no objection to being uh, helpful and to urging people to take the product if it's a good product and it's right for them. You know, because some people just can't make their mind up and they need you to help them. I have no objection to that whatsoever to, for a person to be, you know, a go-getter. Absolutely do that but i have an objection to exploiting people mm. and that's and there's a difference you can do once you've been in sales a while you can tell the difference between a person who's just indecisive and they really need your product but they just can't make their mind up and a person who just has no clue what he needs but and so he'll do whatever you tell him <laughs> but uh what you've got is really not right you you know the difference Right. And my question is, can you look yourself in the mirror the next day after you right. <laughs> take advantage of some poor person? Right. And I, I mean, that, that, that question really applies through all time. Uh, all right. I'm going to ask you another one, and then I'm going to introduce everybody to the show's host, the great mm -hmm. Tim Roxbury. Uh, but when you went on these archaeological uh, excavations or digs or surveys or whatever they were, and because there were several of them, I'm sure not all will apply to this question, but uh, what is it in these archaeological digs that may uh, give you more hints on how economy or the socioeconomic statuses of the day, you know, uh, uh, yeah. uh, in, in the time of Jesus? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, how, on an archaeological dig, is where do you find anything that answers a question like that? And have yeah, you? Great question. Great question, Chip. See, you ask great questions. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, uh, first, let me explain the difference between a survey and an excavation. A survey is what you usually do before you return the next summer to excavate. So, in a survey, you will walk over a large site, picking up things off the ground, you're not allowed to do any digging, and you'll take those objects back and evaluate them, assess them, and based on that, you'll decide whether the excavation would be uh, of value or not. And if you've, you've picked up some good stuff right off the surface in the survey, and that usually takes you, you know, we spent three weeks walking miles and miles every day. Uh, if you pick up some good things in the survey, you're going to probably return the next summer and start excavating. So what do I find when I excavate that helps me understand the economy? The first thing you're going to look for is the, the size of the house. Uh, you want to try to find some houses. 
and you want to determine how large they were. And usually all that's going to be remaining, as it, it would be in our house, would be the foundations. And maybe yeah, just like the bone, bone of the structure, you know. Yeah. Without any of the tissue or muscle. But you can uh, you can tell the dimensions of the house by that, mm-hmm. uh, and that will give you some clues of maybe how wealthy the family was. You when you excavate the floor of the house, you might find some coins that they dropped, and might even find a stash of coins in a jar. So they had the family had a little bit of wealth, and you might find some jewelry and things like that. So all these things will tell you how well to do the family was. You don't buy gold earrings and nose rings if you're not able to to eat every day, right? So these are luxury items. If you find now, nobody in an average house is going to have a lot of those things, but do they have some? So these are what we call working class people. And what we find is that most of the houses were owned by what we would call in our society working class people. They're not the upper elite. They're not the billionaires. They do find some houses like that, but, you know, just a few. Uh, Most of them are just working class. But here's the question. Where did the poorest of the poor live? And we surmise nothing is left of whatever they lived in. They probably lived in a shanty. Nothing, you know, nothing durable about their house, like a few courses of stones or bricks. Nothing like that's left because their shanty was just a a few sticks and mud, and they've all decayed long ago. So uh, that's the tricky part. We can tell where the working class people were living. We can identify the rich, rich of the richest of the rich, the billionaires, or their equivalent by their huge mansions. But we can't find traces of the poor, the, the extremely poor. Wow. So their houses don't survive. Yeah, and probably. probably were people who didn't even didn't even have a shanty. They were probably just totally homeless. Especially over that time. Yeah. The question is, what percentage was in the lowest third? Uh, And that's that's harder. There you have to look through the literature, but the poorest of the poor didn't write anything, so they don't talk about themselves. Or if they did, it probably didn't last over time, you know, with those conditions. This is usually like hot, lots of hot, you know. It's hot in... In uh, the mountains of Israel, they get a lot of rain, so things will decay like they do in North America. In the desert, they don't get much rain down by the Dead Sea, so things are going to last longer. But wherever you have something that will decay, in the mountain area, the hill country they call it, it's not going to survive. So we're kind of, uh, when we find a village, we're kind of asking always, where might the poor have been in this village? Because Nothing is left behind from them. It's all, it's all just been erased from time. So, and so it's hard to tell how many, what percentage, was in the lowest bracket. Yeah. So those are the questions that archaeology is trying to answer, uh, and it gives a whole lot of help to the documents that we have, uh, the the literature. But it's just, it's just for me enormous fun, enormously exciting to start you know, putting your trowel in the soil and pulling up things. Uh, and you yeah. don't put your trowel in and, and pull up a, a stash of coins immediately. The, those are right. rare. Uh, you know, and spe- speaking of that, and that must be so exciting because I love 
I, I know how you love mystery books, you know, so actually yeah. having a mystery like that right in front of you has to be really exciting. But let's say you and I are excavating together and I found a coin and I put it in my pocket. Would you tell anybody? <laughs> yes, you I don't would. have to answer that. That's just a hypothetical. I would, I would tell. Um, I mean, I, there probably are some some people that do go on these digs and find things and keep them. But for me, it's the excitement is putting it all together and and making a picture, making a coherent picture of the house and the village uh, and what the people were doing. And uh, so it's the coherent picture that matters, and they need all the, the parts to do that. Yeah. Uh, and you're not going to find anything that's that valuable anyway. Uh, this isn't like uh, going into a tomb in Egypt where you'd find gold-plated things. Uh, they're all modest. I mean, it, if you if you take it to the Antiques Roadshow, they'd probably say it's worth <laughs> maybe $10 at the most. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm thinking of those shows where they dig for treasure and, you know, Eight of their guys are getting killed, and they're still going out digging for more treasure, you know. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, I, you know, the great Tim Roxbury, by the way, host of the Supernatural <laughs> Realm. <laughs> I just wanted to bring him in. <laughs> okay. Timmy. Yeah, I'm kind of multitasking here between watching a chat room and making sure we're streaming. But uh, huh? I want since since um David had mentioned about uh, excavating, I want to go to maybe a supernatural question since you are on since we are on a supernatural realm. Um, after you excavate these items, do you does anybody or do you yourself feel any sort of energies with these items? Ooh. Yeah, great question. Uh, especially you would ask that because I mean, if you saw the the original. Um, I was in the, the, the original Exorcist uh, movie that I think it all started with a guy. Oh, that's right. Excavated something in Egypt, right? Unleashed, unleashed the demon. Um, well, I don't, I don't myself. Um, you, you know, you can't always, maybe I don't because I can't see it, but uh, I don't. Uh, I don't feel anything like that. I've even uh, helped, uh, you know, work in tombs. Um, we we found a tomb in one uh, survey. We didn't, we weren't allowed to dig, but oh. as you get into a tomb, of course, there there were the the stone sarcophagi, the stone uh, coffins. Wow. They were all empty, as far as we could tell. Somebody had gotten in there probably centuries ago and dragged out the skeletal remains and. Was the and stone they used different from to like the normal stones in the area? Do you think? No, it was the same. It was it was just limestone. They just got you know they quarried the limestone in the area, and they they were probably as heavy as could be. I don't know if they maybe how they got them in there, but uh, the each coffin must have weighed just a lot of a lot of uh, ton or no, I don't know like tons, but a lot of pounds, maybe a ton or or more. But anyway, everybody was buried in a stone coffin, or we call them a sarcophagus. Uh, but they were all empty. The lids were pushed aside. So you can see in them. Uh, there's nobody in there. Um, we didn't see any grave goods. In you know, like they sometimes would lead uh, leave behind uh, uh, vials of perfume to you know to 
wow. sort of fumigate because it get kind of smelly in a tomb. Right. It might be behind a cooking pot. I'm not sure why they did that. The cooking pots, were they taking food out there and leaving it for the dead, or were they just going out there and having a meal? We, we can't right. figure out why, but you find a lot of cooking pots left out there. Huh. We found nothing like that. No cooking pots, no glass vials with that maybe held perfume, no lamp, lamps. We'd often find lamps. You know, they would come out with a lamp, obviously, to see in the tomb. We found nothing like that. So they were all robbed out centuries ago, evidently. No, no bones whatsoever in there. So, uh, but we did, you know, the, the stone sarcophagi are just too heavy to move. <laughs> so right. they left him behind. But even in there, I didn't feel anything. Um, uh, I, I felt, you know, respect for <laughs> folk that had been, had been buried there. I, I think we should respect the place right. uh, and not uh, not destroy it or anything. And, and we didn't. We didn't move anything. We just measured and sketched what was in there and left it all as it was. Um, but uh, I, I didn't myself sense anything. But just because I didn't doesn't mean it's not there. Right. I can't just go by what one person feels, but I did not myself feel anything okay. except, you know, a, a sense of respect. And as you're in there, you're thinking, you know, what, wonder what these people's lives were like, wonder how long they lived. I, I hope they were happy. I hope they attained <laughs> a measure of happiness and contentment in their life. Maybe <laughs> love their family. You know, you always hope that that's the case. You, uh, you just start thinking about people's lives, and you hope that they didn't have a tragic life or anything. But, right. but obviously, they all came to that, in that await that's, us. That's a great answer to a great question. So my nod to Timmy. And, bef and before he gets another word in edgewise, just one more question about the coffins. Was it too Absolutely. limited a sample uh, to be able to tell the difference between because you're, you're – you're excavating to find what, you know, uh, the wealthier people's homes uh, might have looked like, the middle class and yeah. the poor, which was very hard to find. Where, is it too limited a sample where you could tell the difference of the coffins that the, would be in the rich people's uh, area and, and the not-so-rich people's area, or was it too limited sure. a sample? That's a great question, and, and that's one thing you have to consider, the sample size. I think there were about in this tomb visible because it could have been, you know, that under the dirt floor there were other coffins that we couldn't see. I think where there were about 10, I'd say 10 to 12 of these coffins, uh, and they were all very modest. You know, they were just the bare, you, you cut out from a, from a quarry site a, a long chunk of stone and you hollow it out. And you put a, a lid on it. So it was all very bare. Now, on a hill, uh, go across the valley and up another hill, we found coffins that weren't in a tomb. They were just standing free. Wow. And they had been sort of decorated. In other words, you take a chisel and you chisel out flowers or grapes or something. On oh, wow. The really? That's neat. So that probably was the, for the well to do. Wow. And the ones in the tomb were probably the, the working class. Right. Uh, and, and they may have made their made the coffin themselves. They may have just, you know, let's get Uncle Bob and Cousin Zed. <laughs> you know, just, a, just a homemade job. Uh, whereas the others uh, that were decorated probably had a professional 
stonemason or carver or something to do it. But uh, that surprised me. I'd never seen that in Israel. The stone coffins were just sitting there on the ground. There was nothing in them again, but and I think there were four or five like that. And then nearby was another tomb. But uh, I guess the well-to-do, maybe the patriarchs of the family or something, they would just put them in a sarcophagus and 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 leave them there uh, exposed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I would so I would say the the tomb that we measured and sketched was probably the, the working class. And so here's the question that people ask: What happened to the poorest of the poor? Right. We didn't have an uncle Bob and a cousin Zeb to make them a coffin. They probably just dug a hole and put them in the ground. No tomb, no coffin, just put them in the ground. That's the speculation. Uh, and they found some of these cemeteries, uh, but you're not going to find the vast majority of them because, I mean, how would you know where to dig, right? So, right. right. Uh, in the case of a tomb, it's, it's like a cave. So you see uh, what looks like an opening in the side of a hill, and you scrape away the dirt, crawl in it, uh, it's a tomb, right? But in the case of a hole in the ground, there's no way to, no way to tell where somebody's buried. So we probably won't find a whole lot of the poorest people. It's just like their houses. I mean, where they're buried, it's, it's also a mystery, but we speculate um, uh, and try to kind of flesh out then what's missing from the picture. I think Uncle Bob and Zeb and I are going to watch The Exorcist later on tonight. I'll be thinking of you, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll tell him you Look said hi. I, uh, <laughs> I, I forget what that what that guy opened. He found something and he opened it. And yeah, right. right. Yeah. Uh, so I, if I find anything that looks like that, I may leave it closed. I may, I may <laughs> let somebody else open that up. It was Bazuzu, if I remember correctly. Could be, yeah. Did you, did you ever dig anything that kind of scared you a little bit or freaked you out after this? Uh, anything that scared me or freaked me out? Yeah. No, the stuff I find just excites me. I mean, oh, wow. it's, I mean, it, it, let's say you came from, uh, uh, I don't know, let's say you came from Papua New Guinea and you came to America and you walked through my house. And you're looking at all the objects. You've never seen objects like those. I mean, they wouldn't scare you. You'd be, wow. (laughs) That's the way I am when I find something in the soil. Uh, First thing I do, I hold it up, try to figure out what did they do with this. And and other people may come over. And there are all kinds of experts on these excavations. Experts on bones. They'll tell you what kind of bone it is, what animal, and and how the animal died even. They'll, They'll tell you, you know, quickly, which is pretty fascinating. But also the people, they, they study glass, they study ceramics, they study coins, uh, and they study lamps. And they'll come over and just tell you, you know, in five minutes uh, all about it. That's pretty exciting. So no, nothing has ever really scared me. I just, I just find it enormously interesting and exciting to uh, do up this stuff. Maybe that just means I'm a nosy person, but that's the story it is. Well, you like mysteries. I mean, that's why that's why we're uh, uh, radio hosts and radio co-hosts. You know, we, we like yeah. mysteries too. We get it. Man. Except, yeah. you know, we haven't been on one of those yet. So, Timmy, road trip. Man. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, but go with a go with a certified 
Archaeologists don't just set out on their own and start digging. That's kind of illegal. So, okay. <laughs> so you guys will wind up, uh, you know, on a federal prison. We think for doing this. So. Yeah, no, that that wouldn't be that wouldn't be too fun. Yeah. Is it? Is it? Was it hard for you to find? You know, one one of those guys, or or uh, you know, did you find one through the university, or, or how did you, how did you come uh, across guys that you could so, do this with? Great question. So I. Um, sometimes would go look at a magazine called the Biblical Archaeology Review. And in the January issue every year, they will list all of the archaeological excavations that they know about. Oh. And so you can just hook up to one of those that looks good. They'll tell you, you know, how many weeks they're going to be digging. They'll tell you the approximate expenses, the, the time, uh, you know, that the, the dates for the dig and so forth. Uh, and they're going to explain where they're excavating and what they hope to find uh, that summer. So I would I would look at those. But then in other cases, I just knew people, and uh, and I went with you know people I knew. But you can start there. Wow. Are they are they like uh, you know kind of stuffy, you know, <laughs> like look down at you? You know, I see some of the. The lead excavators, you know, either in movies, which probably exaggerated anyway, or some of the TV shows, and they usually look like real stuffy people. You know, yeah. were, were they cool or were they stuffy to you? Well, uh, yeah, <coughs> what you see in the movies is not very accurate. If you're an excavator, you know, you're not a stuffy person, or you wouldn't be out there sweating. <laughs> it's really hot. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, you're just doing manual labor. Uh, imagine yourself working as a ditch digger. You're doing that, except you're not digging a ditch. You're taking, you know, thin layers off back and forth across a site. You don't just dig a hole, but you you peel back layers like an onion, and you go back across and back and across and back across, and then you put that dirt into a bucket, and you haul it off and sift it, and you come back and fill up another bucket. So it's manual labor, and these guys are out in the sun with you and uh, sweating and becoming dehydrated and... And uh, so, no, they're not stuffy people. They're they're usually, uh, <laughs> you know, they're usually pretty rare type personalities. I'm telling you, maybe that's why they have those stone coffins for the people doing the digging and, and you know. <laughs> Could be. Could be. Maybe it's for them. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it gets a little too difficult for them, and bye-bye they go, and at least you got a place to put them, you know. That's right, lie down. <laughs> these are usually very colorful characters. Oh, okay. the, the ones that do it every year, they're very colorful uh, men and women. Uh, you, you wouldn't find them stuffy. And, and they don't look down on people who come for the first time. They're just thrilled to get the help because it takes an enormous amount of labor. You can't do right. it with a machine. It's got to be hand done. It has to be very carefully done. Sometimes when you excavate, you don't even use a trowel. You use a brush because you might destroy uh, what's underneath? So you just you brush away the dirt and brush it into a bucket, uh, and you may you may go all day and only go down an inch off your site because you're being very careful. Because so there could be a very delicate thing of glass, or there could be a little juglet that's in perfect condition under there. You don't want to break it by just digging down there with a shovel or a pickaxe or something. So um, uh, there, it has to be done by hand. Mm-hmm. 
and the more hands you have, the better. And they take time and teach you, and, and they're just thrilled to have you. They'll wow. take you around and show you all the sites. Uh, they don't just let, just let you come and dig and send you home. They'll, they'll show you all the sites in the area. It's all included, you know, in your, in your trip. So, yeah, if you, if you guys, you know, get some time off from your radio uh, show, you should do it. Then you can come back. You have See that, Timmy? Road trip, yeah. man. Road trip. That's- that kind of reminds me of that TV show Oak Island, where them where them guys. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. But you know, yeah. And that, that my question, I didn't want to say that out loud when I said to some of the TV shows or some of the movies. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. That's what I was thinking of too. See, Timmy and I, we have the synchronicity. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, you can see that. Yeah. Now, I would say Oak Island is closer than Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones is a totally unrealistic. Well, do you know here. Okay, here's a fair question, and, and, and you know, back back to the host of the show here. But I, I inquiring minds have to know, especially because sure. in the movies, you know, in the movies, it's always some either European or American guy that's doing all the work and putting all the orders, and all the locals are just you know blindly following the orders of you know this uh, guy who doesn't come from you know the Mediterranean or the Middle East, and is you know has all this power and gets to keep all the goods and it's not like that in real life right i mean you must get some flack from the locals or at least there's some sort of like sharing of stuff <laughs> you know right you don't you can't keep any of the goods they, they all stay in the country no but i mean you know for for somebody that is like out of the area out of the country <laughs> You know, out of the continent to come over and <laughs> yeah. pretty much not only make themselves at home but boss everybody around and and the locals are just blindly following orders you know i mean i always watch that in movies and go it can't be like that in real life i i <laughs> you know because it's their land you're on you know yeah so inquiring well, minds uh, want to know sure uh, in uh, in the country of jordan you have to employ some of the local jordanians that gives them a summer job, and, and sometimes just the boys of the nearby village. Uh, so I, as I said, in Israel, you will fill your bucket and go sift it. In Jordan, when you fill a bucket, the, the boys will take the bucket and sift it for you. And that and they pay them, you know, uh, I don't know how much, but a, a decent wage, so they'll have something to do in the summer, and they can earn a little money. And the village then has goodwill toward you. So, and you have to do that. And you have to also employ local Jordanian translators because uh, you're out. Something in, in, in Jordan, we were out in the desert sometimes, and we would encounter Bedouin with rifles. We thought we'd come to steal their sheep or something, and they were just <laughs> really hostile. And the, the translator would explain, no, they're archaeologists. And, and immediately they change their tone and bite you to their tent for a cup of tea. And But... If you didn't have that guy, you could be in some danger. So it's for your protection, but also it gives that guy a pretty good job for the summer. So, but in Israel, you don't need to do that. You can yeah. just use whoever comes over there to work. And but the dig director is like the dictator. Whatever the dig director says goes. And you know he's he's like a like a well, he is a dictator uh, for the dig. Now, of course, you could offer suggestions and they're not <laughs> i've never been with one that was mean or anything but they do determine what's going to take place uh, but, but the locals are glad to have you think of how speaking of economy think of how that boosts their economy you're oh, staying sure. in their hotel 
Yeah. You're buying food at the restaurants. You're yeah, buying. Hiring their, the locals to, to help with the dig. Yeah. Yeah. So they're delighted to have you. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a, not a problem. It's not that I've never had any experience of tension with the locals. They, they want you there. Yeah. I was worried about having a translator that's, you know, going to, you know, not, uh, I'll say something and then they'll say something in the language that's uh, like mean or nasty. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, can you ask him if we can have a cup of water? And the translator will say, he just called you ugly. You know, that's that's (laughs) the kind of concern I'd have. (laughs) Yeah, that that could be a concern here. (laughs) You just hope they have your goodwill in mind. Yeah. Yeah. But in, in Jordan, you would sometimes, we would drive a Jeep as far as we could drive it, way out in the desert. Then we have to get out and walk, and we might hike 10 miles, and there's just nothing. And then all of a sudden, you see this guy riding a donkey, and he's got about 50 sheep following him, and he's got a rifle slung over the donkey, and he gets off and he starts screaming at you, and you know there's a little bit of tension there. So... I mean, if the guy wanted to shoot you, nobody would find you for like three months if they even found you then. Yeah. So it, you're awfully glad to have. But they do have those stone coffins nice and ready and waiting for you. Oh, they, they can shoot they can you right back to the sarcophagus. So anyway, the, the, the locals are they're glad to have you. They, they get a job, and, and you kind of need them. But it's more in Jordan than it is in Israel. Uh, you don't run into... Too many Bedouin out in the desert in uh, in Israel. It's it's you know thickly, densely populated and settled, whereas Jordan just has these vast spaces where there's nothing. So it would be pretty dangerous for you to be out there without a guide and a translator. Well, you know that's a question that I probably had for uh, fifty years now. That <laughs> just got answered. So now you, know. you just settled it. I can I can die happily now. That, that's my bucket list is all set. <laughs> uh, how about you, Timmy? How how long have you wondered about that when you watch the movies and and there's the American dude just bossing everybody around and they're going for it. Now I know why. See, you yeah. must have wondered that for a long time, right, Tim? Long time, yes. <laughs> Very long time. Speaking of a long time, are we about ready to take a break? Oh, yeah, it is about time. Yeah. Sure. What we could do that. You are listening to the Supernatural Realm on a WCET FM radio network. We'll be right back right after this. So, you love talk radio, then you'll love TalkStreamLive.com. TalkStream Live is always on, 24-7, with the best streaming talk shows. Find your favorite talkers and discover some new ones. It's free, readily available online, or on mobile with any smartphone or tablet. Finding your favorite talk shows all in one place has gotten a whole lot easier. Just go to TalkStreamLive.com. Be sure to download the free apps from Google Play or the iTunes App Store. We can solve that problem. 
That's what our clients hear from us every day. If you're hurt in an accident and dealing with medical bills, lost wages, and pain and suffering, we help you take back your life. For a free consultation, call 1-800-9-4-EDGAR. Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk Entertainment, including the network you're listening to right now. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. Some people call me the Space Cowboy Yeah Some call me the Gangster of Love Some people call me Maurice Cause I speak of the pompadous of love <laughs> you remind you that somebody's done it <laughs> right we were picking and grinning here <laughs> oh my goodness yeah oh we're just too busy having fun here yeah. you know if, hey if anybody, uh, for those any- of you uh, joining us in this uh, new hour our phenomenal guest is david fennessy uh and he's really written a lot of books, uh, some fiction, some non-fiction, uh, talking really, I think the main focus, it would be fair to say, is Christian origins and the ancient economy, you know, how, how all that really fit in together. Um, I've been uh, focused a lot of questions, or at least uh, uh, it's fair to say in hour one about uh, Christian origins and the ancient economy, which is a book best found on, I think, Amazon. David, I should ask you where the best place to find the books are, but I should spell your last name for the listeners because it doesn't look at all like fantasy, you know. No, uh, sorry. No, that's okay, you know. I was thinking, you know, fantasy is how I would pronounce Hennessy after I've had five of them, you know, at the bar. <laughs> but, the, but that's for another show, I think. <laughs> yeah, that for another guest. Uh. Yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> Uh, but the, the, the spelling of David's last name, actually it's David A, middle initial, A, uh, last name is spelled F-I-E-N-S-Y. Uh, and uh, Fennessy is uh, David's last name. Uh, Colin number, oh, I just lost it now. I <laughs> figure what that Colin number is. I had it right in front of me, man. Uh, Colin number is, ready? Seven two four six zero two twenty eight twenty six. We'll say that again. Seven two four six zero two twenty eight twenty six. Call us in if you have a question for David Fennessy or Tim Roxbury. I'm not answering questions today. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a Thursday policy for me, you know. Uh, but yeah. Call us in, ask us a question. Uh, yeah, what, what, 
best place to find the books would be on Amazon. Is there uh, any other places you recommend where they could find the books? Well, I mean, I think they're all at Barnes and Noble as well. I I don't want to, you know, favor one bookstore <laughs> over another. Hey, we won't they tell are. anybody, man. Your secret's safe <laughs> with us. <you> know? <laughs> they're all on Amazon, but they're also all Barnes and Noble, and there I think there are a couple of other like online book stores, um, the names of which I don't recall at the moment. I don't, I shouldn't say I don't use them. It doesn't sound good, does it? But uh, they're, they're lesser known entities. The two main ones are Barnes & Noble and Amazon, and, and all my books are in those places. You can go online and, and get them there. Yeah, but plus, you already have right. copies of your books, so you know, you're not out looking at particular places to get them because you've already got copies. I already have a copy. Yeah, I guess I, I shouldn't be out buying more copies of it. Uh, but uh, it is important. Thank you so much for spelling my name because uh, it's kind of hard to find me if you can't spell that name. It's a, it's an odd spelling. My great-grandfather immigrated from Ireland uh, in the year 1861. Wow. Uh, he was a very young boy, and, uh, you know, he was a, a good Irish Catholic. And his uh, his community said you got to change the spelling of your name. I think because in those days they didn't want the Irish, and so he oh, changed it so it wouldn't look Irish. <laughs> but they they kept the pronunciation, but they just changed the way it looked. So that's all we know. But um, see, I, I wish my great grandfather had done that for my name. <laughs> Took me eleven years to learn how to spell it, you know. But you know, okay. <laughs> just the way, the way it is. Now you've got you've got so many books, so I I, I wanted to ask you really uh, if there was any book in particular that we really haven't uh, talked about, which is most of them, that you would be most interested in talking about, and if so, which one would that be? And uh, tell us a little about why, um, oh. because you have so many so many works out. Yeah. Well, when you're a writer. The one you're most interested in is the one you're doing at the moment. Uh, so if I can talk for just five minutes about the one I'm into now, it's not, you can't buy it yet, but it, it will be out in a few months, I hope. Okay. Um, so the one I'm doing right now, it's called The Archaeology of Daily Life. Wow. Uh, in, in first century Palestine. Ooh. So what I'm trying to ask is, what was it like to be an ordinary person? what I would call a working-class person. What was it like to be an ordinary person in Palestine in the first century? Uh, because when you read the texts, those, they're mostly written by the upper class, the educated. Mm -hmm. Most people couldn't read or write, so they didn't write anything. Right. So what's it like for them? And um, Boy, there's a mystery for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's tremendous fun. We can use some text, but you have to read the text carefully because most of them are written by the upper class describing the working class. And they usually are pretty contemptuous of them. But archaeology is best because we have stuff from their house and so forth. And then also uh, we have their own bones. We have their skeletal remains. So I can, wow. we can tell how, how old they were when they died. We can tell if they had a, a disease that left any traces on their bones. Uh, were they sickly? Were they healthy? Uh, and how long did they live? How, what was their stature? How tall were they? What did they look like? What was their facial 
uh, or, or their facial uh, features like. So uh, things like that. Uh, tremendously interesting to me. It uh, is like a mystery. So each chapter, there are 12 chapters, each chapter uh, asks a new question and tries to solve the mystery using archaeology supplemented by the text. Archaeology of daily life. And uh, it's, uh, I have a book contract. The same publisher that did Christian Origins in the Ancient Economy is going to be doing, going to be publishing this one. Okay. And, uh, you know, it should be out in probably eight months. It, it, it takes them a while. Once they get the manuscript, it takes them a while. But I'm excited about that one. <clears throat> as far as, as far as the other books uh, that have appeared already, um, there's a book entitled Insights from Archaeology. Insights and, uh, from Archaeology. From Archaeology. So that's just, it shows you how archaeology works. It's just some examples of how archaeology can inform us about the past uh, and uh, reveals then some, I hope, insights, some things that maybe weren't commonly known before we began studying archaeology. So we have a, that's kind of a... Yeah, we have a caller number. from the uh, eight, 985 area. Okay, go ahead, caller. Give your... You want crazy people to call in. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a question for the guest? Actually, you gave the number out, and I was just seeing if, you know, uh, 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 the the thing would work in Skype, because it hasn't been tested for butt yet. <laughs> well, I think you got your answer, though. Yeah, I think we got cool. it, yeah. See, that's the magic of Timmy, man, you know? That's it. Yeah, if I, if I was producing, that wouldn't be happening right now. <laughs> 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 that was he called me. I tried and it said uh, number unavailable, and then he called me back. So I picked up. You know what that <laughs> See? Well, that's the persistence of our our beautiful host. So that, I guess that means we're online, right? <laughs> we're <Yeah. streaming. laughs> Sorry to interrupt. That that was a legitimate call. Right. Though, that's okay. See, if I were producing, you have two hours of dead air. <laughs> 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 On the great WCETFM, <laughs> the sounds of silence by Simon and Garfunkel. Hey, I thought about playing that song today song. too. To Did you really see yeah. that synchronicity again, brother? <laughs> the sound oh. of silence on repeat for two hours. Oh, that would drive people crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Dancing Queen by Abba for two hours would drive me crazy. But, yeah. <laughs> but that's for hey now. now you know who likes Abba? <laughs> oh, we could always we could always play some Talking Heads, you know. Yeah, we could do that. How about how about, how about dead, you, how David? About dead Kennedys. Oh, what? there, yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> how about you, David? Any requests, man, for you? <laughs> He's at a loss for our our poor guest is at a loss for words now. <laughs> <laughs> You you said you were messing around earlier, so you know I thought I'd join the crowd. Well, it's a beautiful thing. It is. We have fun here, though. I mean, it's not always serious. It's not always you know. It's just a good time. We just talk about whatever. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. It is. Yeah. 
David, you're still with us, right? David. We lose David. <laughs> ah, oh, I wonder so why. <laughs> well, but it, it, at least at least Skype works for Cece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've had no problems. I'm having fun with it, actually. Oh, you want me to try call David back and we do a conference call? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, go ahead and try calling back. I don't know what happened to him, though. Uh, yeah, hmm? yeah, he's he's like gone. Yeah, man, we'll try to get him back. I, you know, yeah, I, that that uh, book he is in the midst of writing sounded very cool. Uh, Archaeology of daily life in Palestine from back in the day. You know, I don't think I'm speaking of days. I don't think I could last a single day there in the heat. You know. I'd, I'd come home with skin cancer like big time, I think. You really got to be passionate about doing something like that, especially in heat. Man. Yeah. Well, it, it makes sense that, you know, because he loves mystery novels so much that he, he sees mysteries like that. I mean, I can't even imagine what it I really be like to be out there on a dig, you know, like that. And it'd be nothing like Oak Island either, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, you know, the thing is, but, I mean, with a show like that, you know, they find something and then they gloat about it for three episodes. Yeah. And and the first thing they do after they find something at this place is go to somewhere different. That just doesn't make sense to me. You know, shows like that drive me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> really. But that's just me. David. Yeah. Let's see if we can get David back here. Yeah. Let's so bring him back on. All righty. Yeah. You let me know. Meanwhile, I'll... David. Oh, oh, there he is. Yay. There he is. <laughs> hey, that's we've... good off. <laughs> now, there's a, there's a call-in that we sure <laughs> love to hear from. You know, we, were, we were actually talking about uh, the archaeology of daily life in Palestine, the, the book that you've been working on, you know, that yeah. will be released soon. Uh, yeah. And that just sounds exciting. So, uh, since we have you back, and to make sure that we do, uh, I've got a question for you. Have you ever, on any of these digs, find any uh, written record of anything? I have not. Um, If you're digging in the soil, the most you're going to find is something scratched on a piece of broken pottery, maybe. And I have not found that. Those are rare. Mm -hmm. They're called ostraca. Those are kind of rare to find, but that's about all you're going to find the things like the scrolls you've heard of maybe the dead sea yeah or yeah or the lost books and all that stuff yeah yeah i mean you'd you'd love to find that but those were left in caves um and most of them put in large jars and they were left by the dead sea well down at the dead sea it it rains maybe one inch a year and it's very low humidity very hot so Scrolls and things will survive a long time down there. But up in the hill country, in Judea and in Galilee, uh, they get about as much rain there as we do in North America. You're in Pennsylvania, it looks like. They get almost as much rain as you get. Oh, yeah. And so where it's wet, stuff like that just won't survive. Uh, But, of course, 
pottery, which is ceramic, that'll that'll survive for millennia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes somebody will scratch something on a piece, or they'll take uh, some ink and write something. The ink may fade, but you can kind of bring it out with certain treatments. But I've never found that, as far as I know. I've never found anything written. And it's it's rare in archaeology when you do. It's a it's obviously really exciting if you find something written. Oh sure. But mostly it's just the stuff, you know. That but what's exciting for me uh, is let's it's, sometimes I'm excavating a house and I'll come across many pieces of uh, ceramic, a piece of ceramics, and uh, we'll take the pieces and fit them together. You don't always have every piece, but you have most of it. And you can see, oh, this is a little cooking pot. Hmm. And so then I start thinking, well, first, somebody had to make that. So I think about the hands that made it. Then you can see the bottom of it is burnt. It's blackened. They've set it on the fire many times. Right. And you can tell from how wide the mouth is what kind of stuff they cook. If it's a small mouth, they cook soups in it lentil soups and things like that. It was a wide mouth. They made stews with large chunks of vegetables and meat. <clears throat> so I picture the people, usually it would be the women that would cook the, the meals. I, I picture the females of the house making maybe a soup and putting the pot on the fire. And then I picture them, you know, pouring the soup into little cups and hands of all sizes, little tiny children's hands and adults' hands, each of them having a sip of that soup. So I create a whole story in my mind when I find it. For me, that's exciting. That's more exciting than if I find uh, a golden tablet or something. Okay. Uh, to think about the family and how many times maybe they use that cookie, that very cooking pot I'm holding in my hands, some family 2,000 years ago gathered around it to eat their meal maybe for a month or two months until it cracked. Then they got him another one, but they used it for a while. To me, that's a really exciting, kind of an awesome experience. Yeah, plus it answers Timmy's first question, you know, yeah. about energies and stuff. Does this uh, does the yeah. pottery or the ceramics or whatever change in, like, bigger houses uh, than they would in little pots? Is, is it the kind of is it the same kind of pottery ceramics or whatever do you think or or do you yeah. do you see because you're talking about uh, socioeconomic status and back yeah. in that time does it change is it different yeah. great question yeah i mean you ought to be an archaeologist you know all the questions i ask <laughs> i'm serious uh, in the in now i've never excavated a house of an extremely wealthy person Okay. I mean, like, be, be like excavating the house of a billionaire today. You know, Warren Buffett. You know, be like excavating Warren Buffett's house. I've never done that, but those that have will find exquisite pottery that's imported, oh. and it's it's coated with a red, shiny substance. They call that Eastern Terra Sigillata pottery. Uh, so it's it's made in a very elaborate and fine process. They'll find that in the houses of the wealthy. But the working class people make their own pottery in, in their own village. Usually, they go out and find a uh, some soil that has a high clay content, and they just make it themselves. There may be somebody in the village that specializes in it, and sometimes they'll buy it from another village if it's you know really well made. Because uh, well made for them means it's going to hold up; it's going to last, not going to crack easily. 
uh, and then they buy it. But, you know, these people don't buy stuff. Uh, when you take their money and go shopping at Walmart, they, they trade or they make it themselves. So a lot of people just make their own. And it's just, it's very simple. It's beautiful to, to me when you wash it. It's got a reddish, you know, a reddish brown color to it. To me, it's very attractive, but it's very plain. It's not like the fancy stuff. And sometimes in the ritzy houses, they not only have a red coating, and that's beautiful pottery, but it'll be painted. They'll have flowers painted on it. Um, of course, this is Judaism, so they wouldn't paint an animal or a human face on it. If you were in a Gentile city, you could have, you know, an animal's image or something on the, the dish or the pot. But uh, for them, it's a flower, maybe a geometric pattern, but it's beautiful stuff. But yeah, they they will have more expensive pottery in the wealthy houses than in the in the working class houses. That's for But that's a great question. And that's one way you tell the difference. Of course, the size of the house. If if you if you're estimating a house that's obviously a mansion, I mean, it's like uh, one house in Jerusalem that they have found had uh, thirteen thousand square feet. That's to me a, a nice little bungalow. Um, whereas the average person, you're talking you know, 300, 400 square feet in the house as the average working class has. It's quite a bit of difference there. Uh, but um, the, but in addition to the size of the structure, the stuff you find in it, the pottery, if it's imported, obviously it's very expensive. And then if you find jewelry, you find a stash of coins, all of that tells you that this family is well-to-do, and, you know, the other family is a more modest means. But the modest family at least has a house. Uh, and that says something. They live in a house and they, uh, they're they able, obviously, to, to feed themselves. There must have been some that didn't do that. Uh, hey, Timmy's got a quick question. Okay. Uh, what, what are your, your most interesting pieces that you've dug up, your most memorable yeah, great question. So, um, it, almost invariably, when you go on a dig, uh, you have beginner's luck. So, but I went. My first dig was in 1998, and uh, went to a little town called Beit Saida, on northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, the, the very first day, I just kind of sat down on the ground, started carefully digging away, and I found this huge jar uh like three feet tall and it was in like three pieces i mean that's just rare to find that big a a piece that's not broken to smithereens and so i pulled it out and I just kind of put them together and said wow well everybody's excited you know everybody came over it was like i was the greatest archaeologist ever and it was just beginner's luck i sat down where i was since then i have found nothing quite so interesting as that but uh, you find a lot of pottery because I mean, that's what they use. They, they make it themselves. You find some glass. So an interesting thing I found in the city of Sepphoris. Sepphoris was the capital of Galilee for a while. Okay. They had some Gentiles living there, mostly Jews in the first century. But I found this glass lamp, uh, a you know, big portion of it, and very finely made uh, piece. I pull it out, and I didn't know what it was at first, but you, you clean up all the dirt. I said, yeah, I think this is a lamp. I took it over to the head archaeologist. 
Yeah, you found a very rare piece. So it's a very delicately made glass lamp, obviously uh, owned by a well-to-do person in Sepra. So those are two of them. I found some coins, um, and uh, that's probably found, uh, you know, just mostly pottery. That's what mostly anybody finds. Uh, a, a juglet uh, that was almost in perfect condition. So a little tiny jug that would have held uh, maybe some olive oil. You know, they wouldn't have used it to hold anything much. Maybe a little bit of olive oil they would have uh, put in it, but nicely made. Um, so just common household things that I found. Nothing like the Ark of the Covenant or <laughs> the uh, the chalice or anything. Yeah, we have a question in chat from Vicky. Uh, she asked if sure. you dig, if you dig, if your digs have uh, you ever uncovered any ancient scrolls? No, I, I never have. I wish I could have, but I, I never have. Um, you won't probably find them in the ground because they, if they're in the ground, they're going to decay. Mm. You know, they they're going to decompose within probably a few months, certainly within a few years. And we're talking scrolls from 2,000 years back. So I never have. Wish I could. Now, I've been down to the Dead Sea area where they have all these caves. They have caves in these cliffs like you wouldn't believe. And, of course, everybody who goes there, including myself, climbs back into every cave you see thinking you'll find scrolls lying on the cave floor, but I've never found any. And everybody who goes there is like me. They try the same thing. So uh, I've never found any, but I uh, wish I could. Okay. Chip? Oh, um, yeah. Uh, because a lot of the, uh, the the books that you're writing have a, a great tie-ins, you know, between that time period, especially, and uh, 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 economy. I'm thinking yep. in this day and age, now they got cryptocurrency. That's over my head. I don't get that. But I think, you know, uh, regulated or not regulated, you put people and money together and bad things happen. Um, sure. Back in that specific day and age, what was the currency in general? Was it mostly like uh, bartering or actual coinage? Uh, what? How would you consider, you know, oh, uh, how, how uh, how people paid for things and bought things and sure. stuff like that. Yeah. Well, so they had uh, coins. <laughs> they didn't have no paper money. Uh, they, their money was coins. And uh, the coins could be gold, but those were rare. Uh, it could be silver. Uh, you had to have permission to, to mint a silver coin. And so they minted them entire uh, city up the seacoast, the tire would be in Lebanon today. Uh, but in Palestine, the coins they minted were all bronze. And uh, they, were, they weren't, uh, you know, a, a tremendously uh, expensive coin. They weren't of great value. But if they paid, they were paying with these coins. Um, and so during one way you can express your independence of Rome, because, I mean, Rome had to give you permission to mint the silver coin. So in the Jewish rebellion that began in 66, the first thing they did was mint their own silver coin, their silver shekel. 
And they put all the coin year one, like we're starting time all over again. Wow. Uh, because we're revolting. So the coins not only paid for things, the coins were an expression of the propaganda of the government. On the Roman coins, of course, they would have the image of the emperor and all the great things in the back. They might have an image of a, of a deity, a pagan deity. Um, and when the Romans uh, defeated the Jews in the Jewish war, they had uh, a female representing Judea, and she was sitting down and crying, and they had Rome standing over her, you know, in a threatening pose. In other words, they were sending out propaganda. As everybody spent the coins, they could see that Roman propaganda. We beat you. So the coins were, they were used for more than just paying for stuff. Hmm. But as you go from village to village, I don't think they always used coins. For one thing, they didn't. They didn't like to use coins that had the image of a person or an animal. That's that's contrary to, right. to the, yeah, the second right. of the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. So they preferred to use the old coins from what we call the Maccabean period. The Maccabean uh, uh, leaders minted coins that had, they might have a chalice on it, they might have a, um, um, other kinds of implements from the temple, but never an image of a person or an animal. So they, they would use kind of old coins. It'd be like us using buffalo nickels or something, right? Nobody, they're not in circulation, but uh, that's what they wanted to use, the old-fashioned coins. So they didn't want those coins with the images. So that's the first thing about it. They, they only wanted to use coins that were not religiously offensive. Secondly, though, it's easier sometimes if you just barter and you say, you know, I'd like one of your chickens... How about I give you, uh, you know, a quarter bushel of wheat or something? And so they would just exchange uh, as opposed to turning the chicken into four coins and buying the wheat. They would just exchange. So they still bartered, uh, actually, but coins were out there, and whenever they're available, people will use them. Um so, for example, if you wanted to, this is one, one of the chapters I'm writing, um, if you wanted to give your daughter away, you have to give her a dowry, and the rabbinic uh, uh, law is you have to give her a dowry of 50 denarii, which is quite a bit of money, actually, 50 minimum. Well, that's what leads me to think the, the rabbis were kind of upper-level folk. I don't think the ordinary people could always afford that. But anyway, the idea you had to give them a dowry, and the rabbis put it in terms of coins. I suspect the common people would say, I'm going to give my daughter a dowry of a sheep or something. You know, they would probably give it the dowry, not in terms of a coin, but in terms of some sort of commodity. Uh, so coinage is there. It's, it's convenience. It's more convenient for me to carry five coins than to carry a sheep someplace. But it's sometimes not as effective as trading a sheep outright. Mm. What, what so they didn't have coins, yeah. and, uh, and, and they were mostly bronze. They preferred not to use coins that had images on them, uh, and, but they, they also bartered in, uh, you know, in kind. They traded goods with one another. Do you have a lot of these coins? Do I have coins? Yeah, that you uh, excavated. 
I mean, the coins that I have found, I turned over. I didn't take any of them back with me. Um, I, the, uh, the things I've taken back, you know, I've been granted permission. Mm-hmm. So I took a cooking pot back because there was no rim. If there's no rim to the pot, they can't, I mean, they can date it, but they can't, strictly speaking, give it a certain date. So they don't really want the pieces. So that I did take the pieces of a cooking pot. And my wife and I had great fun putting it back together with Elmer's glue and so forth. It's, it's a lot of fun to do that. And it, it, I thought it was beautiful when we got it together, maybe because we did it. But right. uh, it's just a common, ordinary cooking pot. Uh, and I have uh, gone into some antiquity stores in Jerusalem. It, it's against the law to rob a tomb. But once somebody has robbed a tomb and taken it to an antiquity store, they can sell it legally. So that's an odd thing. Wow. So I've bought uh, lamps from an antiquity store. Uh, I haven't bought any coins. The coins they sell are extremely expensive, mm. but the lamps are kind of modest priced. So I haven't bought any coins. But I have found coins. And I always I turn I turn everything over, mm. and if if I take anything home, the the director of the dig tells me if you want it, it's yours. I don't ever hide anything or purloin it to, you know, in my knapsack or anything. Yeah. I'm sure you find a lot of pottery too as well. Could you, we were talking about that earlier in the show. Pottery is just, you would not believe the the amount of pottery. It it just, by the end of the day, depending on how many people are there, but let's say you have 20, it's just a mound of pieces of pottery. Wow. they're only going to keep what has a rim on it because they they refuse to assign a date, even though they have a pretty good idea of what the date is. Uh, it's not considered academically strict. If there's not a rim or a bottom, uh, they'll also date the bottom of a jar. So all those pieces in between that are broken, they just throw them on the pile. Wow. But first you have to wash it because there might be something written on it, as I said. But, uh, yeah, just every day is a pile of that stuff. And so by the end of the dig, what do you do with all that? It's just a mound of broken pottery pieces. Well, uh, I ask, uh, you know, can I bring it back? So I would bring back large sacks of it and pass it out to students. Students would be kind of thrilled to get it, most of them. Some would think, oh, it's dirty, I don't want it. But most of them are kind of thrilled to know this is 2,000 years old. Somebody cooked a meal for their kids. Mm-hmm. Using this pottery, and that that's kind of a kind of an inspiring experience, I think. Yeah. So I I bring it home and pass it out uh, just as a teaching tool whenever I was there. But I don't think anything that they don't offer, you know, that that would be it's illegal. Number one, number two, that the ethics of the excavation demand that everybody pools what they find so we can. In, we can interpret the aggregate, you know, the, the sum total of our findings. And that's what I'm about. I, I just want to know about these people. Yeah. My brother has, has gone to Poland a few times and he goes to these uh, pottery shops and some of the, some of the pottery that he brought home was just, just beautiful uh, dishes and, and coffee cups and everything, just all kind of different designs. And they really put a lot of time, you know, in in the in the you know making this these these um, dishes and, and 
things with the uh, different color designs they put on them. It's really beautiful stuff. Yeah, I think it's a great skill. I think they they practiced for a long time to be that good, mm-hmm. and they used, of course, the pottery wheel. Uh, I've never tried to make something on a wheel, but I think it would be pretty tough. But they, you know, if you're a potter, you start your children young mm-hmm. to learn the, the craft, and you have to just use exactly the right pressure on this lump of clay as it spins to create uh, a cooking pot or a jar. You know, it, it's the same lump of clay, but depending on how you you put the pressure on it, it will be a pot for cooking. It'll be a what they call a casserole, which is a wide open dish, or it may be a little jar, a little juglet. It's all the pressure of your thumb and your fingers, and it's a, it's an amazing skill. It's a very takes a very delicate touch to be able to do that well. So these, whenever you find one and you put it together, you think, wow, this this potter was really good. Mm-hmm. And it's you try to imagine what what it was like for him or her in fashioning that, and then you, as I say, I like to imagine using it to cook the, the dinner and then the family dipping into the pot, maybe dipping a piece of pita bread in there or something and eating from it. Little, I see little tiny hands and I see adult hands and teenage hands and I see elderly hands dipping in there. And I just see an, an entire family centered around that pot that maybe my wife and I glued back together with Homer's glue. Right. <laughs> Pretty amazing it experience. Is. Yeah, for sure. Chip, got a question for? Yeah, um, uh, before the break, you you brought up one of your uh, books called Insights from Archaeology, which is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and and other places. Um, and and uh, I had a question specifically in regard to that, because sure. in the description it, it says that uh, a discussion of how archaeological study. Uh, has shaped the task of biblical interpretation. Have you find uh, have you found anything, or been around when other people have found things uh, that may conflict with something in the Bible, mm. or yeah. you know? Good, Good question. question. And this is the thing about archaeology: uh, it will often uh, raise questions about a text that you thought you understood. So you have to let that happen. You, you can't fight it. You can't resist it. Even if you are like me, a, a committed Christian, if the archaeological ruins seem to call the text somehow in question, you have to let it be that way. And that doesn't mean, you know, you've solved it. You, you, you continue to let it interact. So in this book, I, I talk about five ways archaeology informs our study of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, one way is sometimes it does confirm the text. It'll tell us like a uh, certain king. You know, they've they've got a picture of one of the Israelite kings and on one of the uh, one of the relief sculptures in Assyria. His name is Jehu. You, we can see his face. The only Israelite king who's depicted in the ancient world. We've got his face. Sometimes though it doesn't confirm. It seems to contradict. And of course the big controversy now is the Exodus. Was the Exodus the way we see it in the Charlton Heston movie, The Ten Commandments, or was it some other way? So that's the big one now, the big, mm. the big challenge that archaeology presents to us. Sometimes it will simply give us a complete, it helps us complete the story. Um, so for, the example I give in the book is the Assyrians invaded Judea. 
in the 8th century BC, and they went on to the little town of Lachish, called Lachish. Well, it, uh, in the Bible it says they went to Lachish and they came on back. We don't know much else about it. But in the Assyrian texts and in the Assyrian palace, it has scene after scene of the, the attack on this little town of Lachish. Mm. And the panels are just horrific. They're taking people captive and they're impaling them. They're, they're shoving sharp poles through their abdomen and hanging them up. They're skinning people alive. Mm. It's just Ouch. horrible what they've done to these people. You don't get, the Bible doesn't talk about that because it went on to other things. But the, what we find in these Assyrian palaces flesh out. So when you read in the Bible, hey, the Assyrians went to Lachish and came back. We know what they did down there now. They were absolutely horrific people. So it sometimes supplements the Bible. Uh, and then sometimes it just gives us what I would call contextual background. And without background, it's often hard to understand the text. If you pick up a newspaper, uh, you know, that's written, let's say it comes from San Francisco in 1865, and you didn't know anything about American history, there'd be a whole lot of references there that you wouldn't, you wouldn't get. So you need context. And that's what archaeology often does for our study of any text, including the Bible. It gives us a sense of context. Um, it explains uh, some of the history, explains some of the customs and the culture. So when we read that in the text, we understand what's going on there. So these are the ways that archaeology is helpful uh, to us. There are five ways. And um, I try to give examples of those five ways throughout the throughout the book. Awesome! Wow. Well, that's certainly answered. Yeah, uh, and and that's insights from archaeology. One of the many books uh, from our honored guest, David Fennessy. Uh, again, I, I want to spell that last name again, so to make it easier for the listeners to to find him. Uh, it's David, uh, middle initial A. Uh, and the last name is spelled F-I-E-N-S-Y. F-I-E-N-S-Y. Uh, for David Fennessy, David A. Fennessy, I should say. And, boy, lots of great stuff. <laughs> I mean, you have a lot of work out there. <laughs> i got to start writing again, Tim. You yeah, know? really. You're some competition here. He wrote a lot of Yeah, books. I know. Jeez. I've got like one book, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't even cover a thumbnail on his page, you know. Yeah, no, right? <laughs> well, you, you asked really good questions, though, about history and archaeology. So I think, you, I think you've got what it takes. So go, go out and do it. Well, I, you know, I, I'm, or write a mystery novel, you know. That's a, that you know. Too. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I'd have to take my wife with me, you know, if I was going to go on one of these things. And, and you know, I wouldn't get a word in edgewise, so mystery books for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my, so my novel that just came out, as I say, it's, it's set in first century Palestine. Uh, and it's about this, this kid who's got a horrible deformity. But it's also a murder mystery. You know, since I love reading mysteries, I have to have a murder mystery in the. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it is a mystery. It's, uh, I, I go into the culture of the day, and I explain the culture by the way people act and talk. I don't, I don't explain it the way I would in a history book, but mm. 
they they pick up the culture from the way people are talking among themselves and the way they're behaving. But, but of course, it's it's uh, it, the background of it all is the Jewish revolution against Rome, and uh, it was just a very violent, violent time. And a lot of these scenes from the history books are in the novel in somewhat graphic detail. Uh, I, my my two daughters read it. I was afraid it would be too violent for them, but they said, no, we loved it. So I guess females can read it and not be completely turned off by it. Uh, they said they thought it was very exciting, and uh, the act, it's, you know, you know, a lot of action in it. But it's, uh, it's one way of learning about the culture and the history without reading a history book. You read, uh, you're trying to figure out who did the crime while there is this major war going on. And uh, so all this other stuff just kind of sinks in by osmosis, I hope. That's my plan. Mm -hmm. And, and so what's I, the name of the book? It's called As Far As You Can. So the title comes from a rabbinic parable. So the young man with the with the twisted face, uh, he he gets married, and of course all marriages were arranged back then. Uh, but on his wedding day, uh, this elderly gentleman from the village comes in, and his wedding present to the young man is to tell him a story. And the story he tells uh, is the one I took from the from the rabbinic literature. And in the story, it's about a young man who, uh, he goes away from his home, his home village, and he goes a hundred days, which to these people would just be an impossibly far journey. He goes a hundred days and he, he does things <coughs> that would sh bring shame to the family. The father hears about the son and he sends his servant to go tell his son, come home, son, I want you to come home. Of course, the servant takes 100 days to get there. And the son writes a letter to the father, says, I can't come home, father. I'm too ashamed. I can never come home. Hmm. So the servant, 100 more days to get back. And the father writes another letter. And the father writes in the letter, son, come as far as you can. I will come the rest of the way. Wow. So that theme, that theme is permeating the novel. So it's not only there's a murder mystery. There's the kid with a horrible deformity, and of course he's angry at the world, if you would be, if you had to grow up like that. There's this horrific, violent war going on, uh, and at the same time, you've got the father and the son interacting in that. So I think it's a, kind of an interesting story. Um, well, it, it certainly inspired me, and I think Timmy too, because from now on, every wedding I go to, <laughs> as a gift, I'm going to tell them a story. There you go. You know, yeah, what? Makes a great what wedding gift, I think, and it, you know, and I can afford yeah, that to, one. <laughs> why go to Macy's and, and put it on your credit card? Just tell them a story. Yeah, that's true. That's true. No, I'll just tell them one, you know. I'll interrupt yeah. the guy who's toasting the uh, the bride and groom and tell them the story, and there's my wedding gift. That's easy. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there I can go. see Timmy, you know, the wheels are spinning, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 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 for sure. But well, I'm not sure I meant to inspire you in that way, but if that's what <laughs> well, I, I just I won't credit you if that helps. Okay, <laughs> unless yeah. you want the credit, we'll you know, but me. I don't. Yeah. We'll blame that on me, or the bride and groom might send me a nasty note. 
Well, it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> Probably not. Well, you haven't seen what I normally give as wedding gifts, so you know, but that's for oh, another. Okay. Yeah, hey, Chip, yeah. who you got for Monday? Oh, that's oh, thank you, Timmy. Well, yes, shameless self-promotion. Thanks to the great Tim Roxbury here on Supernatural Realm. Supernatural Realm, by the way, every Tuesday and Thursday night, right here on WCETFM, uh, the great uh, late night in the Midlands .com, That's where you find it. Uh, boy, I'm excited to be here. Tuesdays and Thursdays for Supernatural Realm from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, but I do have a show, uh, Mondays, and that's also 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, see? So 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, you know, three days out of the five weekdays. Yeah, you can find either Timmy or I. Uh, the name of my show is Kindness Beyond the Veil. Uh, we look at the kinder side of metaphysics, supernatural, paranormal, extraterrestrial realms, and uh, very excited about my guest on Monday. This is a show of all shows for me, this coming Monday from 7 to 9 p.m. right here on this very network. I have Renario Hernandez, uh, Ray Hernandez. He is the co-founder of the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research on extraterrestrial and extraordinary experiences. And they have this uh, survey. I can say uh, it's, it's quite new, uh, but they have talked to, to people who have had extraterrestrial contact uh, all around the world, every single country in the world, uh, almost 4,000 people for this survey. And the results will change the way you see the world. I am really excited about this, and the great Tim Roxbury will be producing, yeah, yes. because, you know, I, I love my Timmy. Uh, so, yeah, that's Monday, Kindness Beyond the Veil, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, just like Supernatural Realm, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Always a good time for that. I'm going to say it a little early, though, because uh, at 9 tonight, you know, if you're all listening, by all means, don't touch that dial. Because the great Michael Vera is up next, and we do love ourselves to Michael Vera uh, with his, his phenomenal show, Late Night in the Midlands. Uh, and his guest tonight is none other than Mark Anthony. Uh, he's, uh, he's known as the Psychic Lawyer, also known as the Psychic Explorer. Uh, he's a celebrity medium, appears worldwide on TV and radio, and tonight he will be on with our beloved Michael Vera right here on this very network, uh, 9 p.m. So, uh, of course, stay listening to us, but don't touch that dial because this is awesome. Oh. I actually know Mark Anthony a little bit. He won't remember me, but yeah. I know him, so I just wanted to say that. Also, uh, Chip, Monday, Monday um, uh, seven, or actually Tuesday, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, we have... Um, uh, returning guest and and friend uh, and author uh, and, and physicist Thomas P. Fusco is gonna uh, join us again awesome. on the show. He wrote the book Behind the Cosmic Veil. Talks about yeah. the super geometric super geometric theory and how uh, the universe, uh, the the Christianity, and everything's tied together. So be sure to listen. To, uh, night, to that next Tuesday, 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern, with the great Thomas P. Fusco. Yeah. 
Uh, we're back, baby. That's, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> every time we say that, you know, we should give him a, a quarter or something. Or maybe one of those old coins, you know, <laughs> that David Fennessy has been talking about throughout the program here. <laughs> yeah. oh. Hey, I got a word. Speaking of that, I got kind of a word question for you. And we're getting close to out of time, so I'll make it a short question and ask for a short answer. But you said sure. that, 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 that uh, back in that time, people needed permission to make silver coins. So would that make silver coins more valuable than gold coins? Considering there's no such thing as a stupid question, but didn't seem like anybody needed permission to make gold ones, you know, or bronze ones. They, they rarely, uh, they rarely made gold coins in the east, in the eastern part of the empire, as far as I know. But the silver ones were common. The Tyrian shekel was silver. The Roman denarius was silver. Uh, but. For, uh, many cities minted their own coins, but you had to have permission. For example, Herod the Great minted coins, but they were always bronze. He didn't have permission to mint silver coins. That was a special status uh, that they gave to you. Uh, but no, the silver wouldn't be more valuable than the gold. You, you had to have permission to do the gold as well, but I still think they did. Okay. I've never heard of finding a gold coin in the eastern part of the Mediterranean. Now, uh, they do have them for sale. If you go to an antiquity shop, they're, you know, they'll have usually a gold coin. I don't know where they've gotten it, but like from Alexander the Great's time, and they'll, it'll be for sale for like $10,000 or something. That's what they want to sell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they always think Americans have tons of money, uh, but that's how they make their money. But if you buy a lamp or something, it's, it's a modest price. That's what, those are the kind of things I buy when I go there. Yeah, I know they do think Americans have a lot of money, but they haven't met me yet. <laughs> but that's, for another, that's for another show, too. <laughs> you make them completely change the paradigm when you go there. They'll, they'll never think that again about Americans. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a lot of things that I hope they'll never think about Americans, you know. but. <laughs> <laughs> That's for another show, too. <laughs> um, because we're, we're really getting close to having to wrap it up because, yeah, uh, again, comments. the beloved Michael Vera is up next with, uh, you know, the the great Mark Anthony, a psychic lawyer. I You know, I love that guy. So I, I'm a little jealous about that. Uh, but is there... Uh, any places where, aside from like Amazon or Barnes and Noble, uh, especially if they know how to spell your last name, uh, where people can find you, find more about you, contact you, anything like that? Uh, they can go to LinkedIn. Um, I have a LinkedIn um, profile there. They're oh, welcome cool. to find me on LinkedIn and, and uh, send me a message. I'd be glad to interact with anybody, any, answer any question or anything like that. Even if you don't buy a book, you don't need to buy a book to talk with me. That'd be fine. I'll, I'll answer any question that I can. <laughs> so that'd be the easiest way to find me is go to my LinkedIn profile. Uh, if you don't do uh, LinkedIn, um, I'm, I'm not sure that Amazon, the Amazon author's page has a way to get a message to me, but um, 
I I think I think if you if you can find me on LinkedIn, you'll find my email address, and you're welcome to email me. Uh, in addition to using LinkedIn messaging, and it's a, actually got your LinkedIn link on the author's page of Amazon. There you go. Just, so go to Amazon, and there's the link. And so yeah, so the easiest way is just to find me on my Amazon author's page, and there's the LinkedIn link, and you can just send me a message right right from there. You got to talk to anybody. Answer any questions. <laughs> I'm able to, or, or you know, whatever. You don't, you don't have to buy a book for me to answer your question. Awesome. And then the spelling of the last name once again is F I E N S Y for David Fennessy, David A. Fennessy. And check him out on LinkedIn, check him out on Amazon. And there's also a YouTube link on your author page. So that's cool. And lots of books, uh, which we highly recommend. Timmy. All right, guys, it's time for us to go. Like As we said earlier, um, be sure to listen to Late Night in the Midlands up next with Michael Vera and his guest, Mark Anthony. Uh, next week, as I said earlier, um, the great Thomas P. Fusco will be our guest on Tuesday from 7 to awesome. 9 p.m. Eastern right here on the WCET-FM radio. Anything All else, right. Chip? Oh, just that, you know, we'd like to thank the listeners. We sure love you and uh, appreciate your listening. And, and by all means, don't touch that dial because uh, uh, Michael Vera's up next on, on Late Night in the Midlands. Uh, and he's got Mark Anthony. Uh, Monday nights, Kindness Beyond the Veil with the great, well, Chip Reichenthal. Yeah, sure, I'll be great for at least a day. Uh, and an awesome guest for you then, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays, all 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on WCETFM, late night in the Midlands.com. We love you all. We thank you for listening. And uh, I, I'd like to, uh, of course, Timmy and I both would love to thank David uh, Fennessy for being here and doing such an awesome job and really rocking the interview. And I just had to say that I love my brother, Tim Roxbury. Happy to be here with him on the Supernatural Route. Thank you, Chip. Good night, everybody. God bless. Have a great week. And don't get uh, slide around too much in the snow up here. Good night, everybody. Oh, man. <laughs> How about that? Good yeah. night.